Shake and Blake presents Moloch and Death Watch. Shake and Blake, a monthly podcast about Blake 7, as shared between earth-2.net and geekplanetonline.com, two websites that both presenters have contributed to from time to time. I'm one of them, and my name's Ian Wilson, and alongside me is Mr. Dave Probert. Why, hello there! Why, hi, Dave! (laughs) How's it going? Oh! Oh! Oh, what, who, who goes first? Oh, we're, we're treading on our audio toes. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm fine. I'm all good. Are you enjoying the Olympics? Yeah, it's obviously a great historical moment and a great way to date stamp this podcast. <laughs> As if we've never date stamped this before. Oh, God, no. <laughs> it was the Jubilee the other month, wasn't it? Uh Yes. <laughs> and I'm sure we referenced the royal wedding last year as well. We so. did, we did. It's, you know, important British milestones. Yes. Mm. Here we are on Monday the 6th of August. <laughs> <laughs> now that really takes it. <laughs> At about 20 past 8 in the evening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, so, well, shall we uh, jump into the feedback? Um, sure, because I believe that incorporates uh, the fact we have actual news to talk about. Yes, well, uh, we were sent an email from uh, Alex Maskia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And Alex says, Dear David Ian, I read this bit of news this morning and thought to myself, I must inform David Ian about this immediately. Quit to the Batmobile! <laughs> S- sorry, I saw Dark Knight Rises last night, so I'm still very much in a Batman mode. Uh, I'm going to see that in IMAX on Wednesday. Ooh, interesting. Wednesday the 8th of August. <laughs> <laughs> I have already seen it the once, eh? Right. But but not in IMAX. Oh, I shall be interested to hear if there's a big difference in picture quality. Apparently there is. Apparently uh, people who see it in IMAX have been sort of blown away by it by comparison to the uh, the regular print. Okay, well, I will let you know on September the 3rd. (laughs) If all goes to schedule. Yes. (laughs) Alex says, anyway, hope you find this interesting. Keep up the great work, guys. As long as you keep producing your thoughtful, engaging and fun podcast, we'll be happy to keep on listening to it. Your faithful listener, Alex. Uh, Thank you. Yes, thank you very much, Alex. And uh, the news is, basically, that... There is plans to do a US pilot for Blake 7. Way! Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> apparently, it's going to be directed by uh, Martin Campbell. Hey! 
yeah. who directed such films as Green Lantern. Yeah, I didn't mind Green Lantern. Uh, uh, and Casino Royale. And Goldeneye. Yeah, and, and uh, The Mask of Zorro, which is a big favourite of mine. Oh, right. So yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be, um, let's see, what does it say here? Uh, GBTV have secured the rights to the Blake 7 franchise from uh, rights holder uh, Andrew Mark Sebel and his company B7 Media. Now that's not, because I thought Paul Darrow owned the rights. Oh no, no. Uh, I mean, B- B7 Media have been producing their own audio plays for a while. Okay. With sort of new people playing uh, like the, all the characters. Uh, yeah. Colin, Colin Salmon played Avon. <laughs> of course. Yes. <laughs> For natural selection. Absolutely. Mm. This is sort of replacing the aborted Sky One attempt to make the show a few years back. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we basically yeah, it's all in very early stages. There's a script being worked on, but yeah, it should be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, absolutely. More news as we get it. Definitely. So, Mr. Wilson, what do you think of a, a U.S. attempt to remake Blake Seven? Well, I, when's that ever gone wrong before? I'd be very interested in seeing it. Um, particularly because I know the British reboot of Doctor Who just about gets away with it. Yeah. But um, the one thing about the original show is it clearly had a budget. Yes. And I think if it's partly made by America with their infinite amount of money, um, then it would look glossy, you know. Yeah. And that's one thing that would probably count in the show's favour. Um, I think the two things it would definitely hinge upon uh, would be the script and the casting. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, one thing we've definitely learned throughout this uh this incredible journey <laughs> is that um, that's a tad disingenuous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is the fact that uh, when Blake Seven is at its best, it's due to the quality of the writing and the performances rather than yeah. the standard of the special effects. Absolutely. So, I mean, I I kind of hope that if they do, you know, obviously, it'd be nice to see like a, a remake of the show with the sort of effects to back back up the script and the performances. But yeah, if if they don't get the uh, the scripts right, that I mean, obviously, yeah, I don't want to prejudge anything because you know, I'm perfectly happy to sit back and just see what happens. Because, I mean, the thing is, I mean, if they remade The Way Back, I mean, slightly tweaked it, obviously. Yeah. But that would be a very strong uh, intro for the show. Well, absolutely. It's all there. Yeah. It's all there. Perhaps just make sure you throw in Avon into the pilot, obviously. Yeah, I mean, well, it'll be interesting to see which way they go with it. Whether they feel the need to get all the crew onto the ship for the pilot, or whether they choose to go the original series route and uh, sort of slowly build up the, the crew complement over a series of episodes. That would be interesting. Although, you, you'd think that they might be hesitant to do that just for the titles. Because you know how American shows always have to have the cast listed in the titles. True. I mean, either way, I think it, it will be interesting. Mm. Regardless of the, whether we like it or dislike it, it will be interesting to see the the American take on it. Indeed. So yeah, more news is at me surfaces. Yeah. So, and, and who knows, this podcast could be going on a darn sight longer than we originally <laughs> planned. Damn, I, di- I didn't even think about that. <laughs> wow, okay, yeah. 
Okay, our next email comes from Gareth Edwards. Hello. Now, basically, Gareth tried to um, send us uh, some feedback for the last episode. Right. But it, uh, for one reason or another, it didn't get through. Uh, apparently, he was hoping to, uh, as he says, pull a packer. Right. As in sort of emailing both of us. But unfortunately... Like, spoiler, he hasn't. Yes. <laughs> but uh, something something clearly went awry. But uh, he has some feedback for Sarcophagus and Ultraworld. Okay. So he says for Sarcophagus, uh, remember back when I first went back to you and spoke of the compilation videos? Well, here's the third episode that was put on Aftermath. Sarcophagus? Apparently. Wait, wait. Aftermath, Aftermath. Well, Aftermath is the first episode of Series 3, isn't it? What? So, so presumably they did, they, they did Aftermath, Power Play, and then, the, and then Sarcophagus. You mean the best way to try and showcase the strengths of the Series 3 crew is Sarcophagus? Apparently. Yeah, I'm, I'm just as dumbstruck as you are. Because <laughs> I, I didn't hate Sarcophagus as much, as much as other people, but what? Yeah, it's not the episode you'd pick, is it? <laughs> no, <laughs> not really, no. <laughs> so like I said, uh, up until recent history, this was quite frankly up there with the web in levels of shit. <laughs> yeah. Since I've seen this before, I'm hating it within seconds. As far as I can tell, this is the second, hopefully, last Callie is taken over by Mind Things plot. <laughs> you, you say he's got feedback for Ultra World as well, does he? Oh, yes. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> uh, this feedback might be a bit disjointed, as I'm going to include what I remember was cut from the compilation tape. Uh, there's a cut from the few minutes, uh, the few opening minutes, till the first act appears and the second half of the magic act, but the rest is there. Now the whole. Callie can't get back to Aaron conversation makes much more sense. As if only going on the uh, compilation video plots, it was she was excluded and and not that the planet has been pretty much wiped out by Servalan. Mm. Uh, there was a cut where Villa talks about the whole experience with alien lines and Tarrant's witty response. It was like, wow, Tarrant gets his marching orders off the black-suited studied Avon. <laughs> and the whole corpse thing. Ah, the memories! There's a cut to uh, describe the interior, the lines regarding the uh, the tripwire beams. Well, sorry, he says there were lines regarding the beams, but the tripwire lines were there. Uh, there's a cut where uh, to uh, smooth Dana's lines and most of the argument of Callie teleporting back, and the argument with Avon and Callie. But we get back to the important stuff, like the alien objects, as if that's important. There was a cut of Callie in the robes and the ending lines of the fights and the song. And some of Caddy's sleeping. <laughs> they lost the madrigal. They oh, did no. something right in the edit. <laughs> so, talking of the song, is it being sung by Dana? I don't think so. And I mean, really, that would require us going back to the episode. And we're not doing that. No. No. Uh, scanning the object, and it's a bit odd that Orak doesn't know what it is, although I suggest the description of an Easter egg stuck on a jeweled base comes to mind. Uh, the whole flying tray thing was cut. What? That's the best bit. <laughs> uh, as neat as the whole sucking power idea is, I felt sorry for Zed and seeing him offline was, was something we had not uh, seen until uh, Blake tried to cross his unknown region of space. Oh, we can see this is really on a budget saving episodes. We get lots of long corridor shuts. Uh, cut the whole of Villa's magic trick and the taunting of him on board the alien craft. 
Oh no! Oh my god, is blue screen the call of the day? Uh, there's another cut of Villa on the bridge uh, up the pins and needles line. Right. Uh, oh god, this plot is dumb. Uh, they cut Avon meeting Tarrant in the bedroom and Tarrant's <laughs> running in the robes and parts of the Tarrant's interaction with the alien Callie. Uh, this is terrible and even worse when it's not cut to ribbons on the compilation tape. That can't help it. Cut more bits of alien Callie parts. I'm glad to say the Avon alien confrontation is in the is in full on both versions and it's only and it's the only beacon of good in this pile of shit yes the set this set explodes and I'm glad that even when Avon kisses it it can be the kiss of death (laughs) yes Avon in the the robes is in the compilation edit there's a cut of uh, Villa where Villa and Dana explain the plot uh, you can tell when an episode doesn't make sense when the characters talk about it. Should be an interesting who counts as the credits are only for the regular cast. Oh, thank you, closing credits, for saying it's Dana's song. D- does it? Fair enough. Uh, this episode is web-like. Or shit. And here's feedback for Ultra World. Yeah. I was going to send a normal piece of feedback for this episode, but I think there is a better way to do it. Deep outside Federation space, Villa is teaching Orak. Cue Avon's confused face. Uh, we find an artificial, i.e. not natural, planet that piques Avon's curiosity and he rushes headlong just like Blake. Oh no, here we go again. Callie is under something's spell. The Ultra World and the Blue Man Group c- come from hell. Right. Or- Orak is trying to understand the idioms of jokes and Avon trusts no one, not even the uh, silver-body-painted blokes. Tarrant finds the chamber belongs to Superman, so we run around the... Ha- <laughs> Right. So we run around the, the Hadron Collider with no escape plan. Bracelet count one as the Ultra crushes it in his hand. So far, this episode is totally bland. The brain is something Jerry Anderson would be proud of. <laughs> and it's two more to the bracelet counts. That's harsh. Will this episode end for crying out loud? But that better not be a slight on Jerry Anderson. I, I hope not, no. Yeah. Uh, so Dana and Tarrant need to get it on. For the computer, I <laughs> I have to laugh... And we reuse the landing sequence from Aftermath. Villa and Orak save the day, and the episode is over. Yay. Okay, so not as good as Villa doing it, but... Uh, well, for a dull episode, I'll try my best. But, uh, yeah, Gareth has sent us some more feedback for the two episodes we're covering this time round, so we'll get to those when the moment comes. So that's three, then? Well, we'll, we'll count Gareth, both of Gareth's as one. I think that's only fair. Oh, okay. The next piece of feedback comes from Lee Rawlings, first-time feedbacker. And he says, hello, you two lovely chaps. Lee Rawlings from the Blue Box podcast here. Can I just say, thank goodness for you. When I finally caught up with Bigger on the inside and had to wait a thousand years between podcasts, (laughs) but that is how it felt, I needed to fill the void with something a little different, but also the same. Hurrah for you stealing the Obi-Wan and Padawan setup so succe- so successfully on Mike and Dad's podcast. <laughs> I fully enjoy your chirpy, fun and o- oblique critique of a series I grew up with in a towel. What? what? <laughs> Allow me to continue. Okay. Uh, for some reason, it was always bath night on Blake Seven Night. Yes, we were poor. I had one bath a week, two when I turned 40. <laughs> So when the music kicks in, I think of me sitting there waiting to watch this adult science fiction program with my parents and fully enjoying Avon being a git, Villa being a coward, 
Gan being unhinged, Blake being heroic, Callie being weird, and Jenna being... Even as a nine-year-old, I thought she was... Oh, and of course, Zed being pompous, and then later Orak being even more pompous. Well, you are both flooding me with great memories. Keep up the good work. Your slave, Lee. Thank you very much, Lee. And uh, my last piece of feedback, the pièce de résistance, if you will. Mm -hmm. We have an email from Dr. Stuart Flanagan. Good Lord. <laughs> well, I think we've dated him enough, to be honest. <laughs> he says, Dear Dave and Ian, hello to both of you from a long-time listener, first-time emailer, and congratulations on reaching your 20th episode. I hope this will result in some sort of celebration of your endurance of 70s BBC sci-fi, or perhaps a psychiatric assessment. <laughs> I didn't even realise we'd reached 20. No, neither did I, actually, until I read this. <laughs> He says, I've been listening to the podcast since April of this year. I was pointed in Dave's direction, hence his seniority in greeting and email address, by Tom Elliott, who makes the excellent Twilight Zone podcast. Uh. And Tom Elliott does make the very excellent Twilight Zone podcast. Uh, this neatly coincided with my own revisitation of Blake 7. Since March of this year, I have been re-watching Blake 7 from the start. Somehow, I also managed to rope my girlfriend into sharing this sometimes strenuous experience with me. So like the two of you... One of us is a not-we and new to the show. While I'm revisiting a show I first enjoyed as a teenager when the BBC released the videos in the early 90s. Much like I did. Yeah. As you know, it's been one hell of a roller coaster ride. We've just watched the third from last episode of season four, which is a fave of mine. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts when you get to that one far down the line. I've hugely enjoyed the journey with you both so far. Taking in the web, still shit in 2012. <laughs> Cosplay Travis, Bully Boy Tarrant, the ups and downs of the Who and Bracelet Counts, and of course, Villa's Gags. <laughs> As has been mentioned previously, I am indeed a medical doctor. I'm sure I have the papers somewhere around here to prove it. And a doctor on Radio 1 Sunday Surgery. To pacify Ian a little, I can reveal that Kelly Osborne is no longer the host of the show. <laughs> although, if he's listened in during the last few months, as he promised a few podcasts ago, he might already know this. I, I do, I do. Yeah. <laughs> As you can imagine, we get all sorts of weird and wonderful medical queries on the surgery, such as, am I normal? Does this really go in here? And should that really come out of there? <laughs> but I must admit, I've never been asked a question, asked the question thrown up by Ultra World as to whether the gunch inside the brain is really green. So, as Ian pointed out, although I'm not a brain surgeon, fortunately I did attend the afternoon on the brain back in first year medical school. So I have a smattering of understanding of this challenging organ. Right. I trust you can pick up the sarcasm in that last sentence. <laughs> After extensive research of medical textbooks and a consultation with Dr. Google, I can confirm that the human brain does not contain any green gunge, being composed of white and grey matter and supplied by what should be red-coloured oxygenated blood. However... Should the brain matter be replaced by a huge abscess, it's possible that the, an exploding green brain could actually be a huge pulsating abscess oozing stagnant and malodorous pus, which would be somewhat unlucky for the individual concerned. But then again, if you are an ultra person with blue skin and are always struggling to understand the concept of what we earthlings call love, the chances are you've drawn a fairly short straw in the universe's grand scheme anyways. Well, I'll bow out now and I'll let you get on with the podcast. 
I've really enjoyed all the previous episodes. The synopsis have been quite helpful for the episodes I've really struggled to understand, e.g. sarcophagus, by making me realise that no one can actually understand them. Not even <laughs> Tanith Lee. Here's to Moloch and Death Watch. I shall return next time with my thoughts on, se- on Season 3, and we'll be happy to answer any other medical queries that pop up before then. Best wishes. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Stewart. Yes, thank you, Dr. Stewart. So, uh, answered some vital medical questions Indeed. there. Indeed, and it <laughs> put me right off my dinner. Um, <laughs> we can confirm that it actually wasn't villains coming up with riddles that destroyed the brain on Ultra World. It just had a massive abscess full of malodorous pus. Lovely. <laughs> so, that brings us an email count of five, because we have a, a MP3 feedback from the orgs for later on as well. Right. Five. Your kindness has cost you, Probert. Has it now? For I have six. Six! <laughs> six! <laughs> uh, yes. Um, ironically, from three people, but never mind. Uh, Hooray! No, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. It's all good. Right, let's it's start. It's a huge feedback section. My God, we've arrived. I We're know. on the map. <laughs> It's only been eight months or so. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, anyway. Pray continue. Yes, let's get started. Let's get started. Uh, We start off from Mr. Graham Mills, um, who apparently he did actually send this in uh, June, but for whatever reason it didn't quite make uh, the inbox until July, and after we recorded the last episode. So, he says... Hi, gents. Sorry if I've not been in touch recently, but first of all, my BT Broadband, capitalised, decided to die on me, and it took them almost a week until they came out and wired me up to BT Infinity. I spent the very wet Jubilee Bank holiday weekend shivering down my static caravan, watching TV, and getting sloshed on the booze I had bought in the local Lidl. But... <laughs> But being British, I refused to give up and come home early and sat the four days out. Just then, I thought my PC was okay. It suddenly came down with a nasty virus and had to spend a lot of time and money getting the PC fixed. And I lost access to a lot of my files, including the fan letter I had written to Glyn Edwards, i.e. Dave the Barman from Minder. Asking him, you know what our follow-up podcast is going to have to be, Dave? We're not doing Minder. We are not doing Minder. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I have no issue with Minder. <laughs> uh, I'm accused of having some sort of bias. I'm just not doing a podcast on Minder. Fair enough. Um, asking him to sign a photograph for me. Just when I thought that things could not get any worse, I went to Bristol for a weekend and a passing seagull decided to drop a greeting on my shoulder as it flew past. I found a public toilet to wash it off, but soon discovered that it was locked, and so walked around for a while until I found a pub. I asked the barman what local ales he could recommend out of the five available on tap, and he said he liked them all equally, so I asked him to pour me a pint of each one. While I went to the gents and removed the seagull's greasing, I came back, slipped, and crashed into the table, 
and spilled a pint of stout down my cream-coloured trousers and <laughs> had, to, had to spend the entire weekend walking around with stout stains on my trousers. This as, is like the plot of a Norman Wisdom film. <laughs> as well as going to the theatre in them. Uh, you see, back back when I was reading The Beano, there was this... <laughs> There was this character called Calamity James. I remember Calamity James. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, moving on to Blake 7. Although I had all of the first two seasons on VHS, I never actually owned or had seen all of the third and fourth series, but had a working knowledge of them thanks to the two editions of the program's guidebook. This meant that the last few episodes you reviewed in your last couple of podcasts were all new to me. Sarcophagus was the episode that the BBC decided to cut to shreds and tack onto the end of the feature format VHS release called Aftermath back in the early 1990s. So we had seen Aftermath merged with Powerplay, which then led straight into Sarcophagus, which is a bit of an odd choice, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was no <laughs> argument here. As they refer to... Our, there we go. As they refer to Aaron being destroyed, which, of course... We, the BBC video buyer, knew nothing about. I think that Sarcophagus should have been the next episode broadcast after Children of Auron, as Sarcophagus seems to directly follow it, as Callie is mourning the loss of her planet and most of her race, which she did not do in Rumours of Death. As for Ultraworld, I thought that the blue-skinned aliens looked quite convincing, and the BBC makeup team did quite a good job, but I don't know why two of them had to be bald, and the other one have a severely receding hairline. Oh well, time for me to go now. Best wishes, Graham. P.S. It is great news that you are going to cover the Sevenfold Crown and the Sindeton experiment. Uh, I think it is. Right, fair enough. Uh, as I said in my very first email to you, I sold these on eBay a while back, but it looks like I will have to go out and buy them again to play along with your podcast. Well, as I say, if, if I can source copies of them, we will, we will have a look at them, but it entirely depends on whether or not we can actually get hold of copies of these things. Indeed, indeed. Uh, and the second email comes in from Graham again, who says, Hi, gents. As we speak, I am listening to your latest podcast, which is reviewing the great classic episode Sarcophagus. <laughs> and I was shocked to hear that it seemed you did not get my last email. And so I forward it on to you again. Best wishes, great. Which he did, that was the last email. P.S. Have you noticed that, although Blake is no longer on the series, he is mentioned in nearly every episode still? This was a contrast to... Minder, as when Terry left <laughs> and was replaced by Ray Daly as Arthur's Minder. Terry was never mentioned again. Well, thank you, Graham. Yes, once again, the, the parallels between Blake Seven and Minder <laughs> are, are staggering. <laughs> the long obscured parallels between. I, I, I love the episode of Minder when Dave the Barber got possessed by an alien force. <laughs> It was, only, it was only defeated when Arthur Daly kissed him. <laughs> Whilst wearing an eye patch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, to deal with his, his, his PS, though, um, Blake being mentioned in nearly every episode still, um, 
I think they kind of had to do that because the show was still called Blake 7. True, but then I think there's also the bigger idea of the fact that, that Blake is a figure. Not so much as a man, but certainly as a, a figurehead still looms large. Mm, yeah. So even when people may have not have heard of the others, they've everyone's heard of Blake. But they'll, they'll often say, oh, you're from Blake's ship. Yeah. Uh, as as we'll get to today. Yes. Um, but I and I suppose there's an undertone that the whole point of the third season is to go looking for Blake, although it has kind of been dropped. Yes. But <laughs> yeah, I think there is there's a, a thing about sort of uh, the legend of Blake, if you will. Yeah. And the next one, it's a return visit from Robin Barnard. Hello, Robin Barnard. And he says back to us, dear Dave and Ian. It's the wrong order, Robin, but <laughs> never mind. Ian, thank you very much for reading out my emails on Shaken Blake. It's great to be able to take part in such a seminal podcast. <laughs> I think you're overstating the word seminal there, but... Uh... I, I, I don't know, it's seminal in the entire different sense of the word. <laughs> I am glad that the Olympics opening ceremony wasn't that bad after all. But let's face it... It was never going to be as bad as the opening of Sarcophagus. <laughs> Not which, nice work. <laughs> which should have stayed buried. Hey! There we go. Ian and Dave, I promise to be less like Orac in future and reduce any predictions about how you mo- might both react or what you will say, as I think it's much more fun to simply enjoy it. Although, <laughs> for me, I, I think it's fine. No, I have no problem with it. Yeah. I, it's, it's good that we have our own Nostrad- Nostradamus. Absolutely. I hope that was okay. Still, I will mention Orac next month. Also, apologies for not mentioning Dave in either of my episode rumblings last time around. This is why Dave's name appears first on this email as pen. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> you'll you'll and, let him off, will you? I'll let him. As you asked... Blake's Seven Monthly was published by Marvel UK under licence from the BBC, much in the same way its already ongoing Doctor Who Monthly was. In fact, the two publications shared production staff and article writers, etc., etc., similar to the shows themselves. You could almost do a Who count if you were so inclined. Um, Dave? Uh... No, <laughs> I take it you weren't a big collector of Blake Seven Monthly. I, I was aware a bit when it came out, but I wasn't watching Blake Seven too much at the time. Fair enough. And what well, the problem with Blake Seven magazine in comparison to Doctor Who magazine is the fact that obviously, even though Doctor Who wasn't being made at the time, Doctor Who had a good like like thirty-five years of history behind it. Yeah. Whereas Blake Seven had four. Yeah. So yeah, there there was a much more limited scope of articles they could do compared to, obviously, you know, the the whole raft of subjects that Doctor Who magazine had to cover. Mm. But it, was, I'm not, it wasn't a bad magazine by any stretch of the imagination. I just I just never picked it up. Well, I only have that one page of Villa's gags to go off of. Um, <laughs> so it, it looked awful, but... Uh, <laughs> okay, I, I won't judge a book by its jokes page. Yes. <laughs> what words to live by. As I don't for most Shakespearean comedies. <laughs> anyway, Blake 
7 monthly didn't start until around the fourth season, so we can't really talk about it much yet. And Ian, please don't Wikipedia it, as it's on the same page as everything else to do with Blake 7. Spoiler alert. I am much more hopeful for this month's two episodes, and hopefully the title of the first episode doesn't turn out to be rhyming slang. (laughs) I see what he did there. Is this where you remind the listeners Shaken Blake has an ex- has an explicit rating? Until we arrive at Terminus, Robin. So thank you, Robin. And then his next two are indeed um, him individually feedbacking. So uh, we'll, skip well, again, those, we'll... we'll skip those two for now. And uh, the final email uh, from the inbox comes in from a uh, Lee Rawlings. Hello, hello, you two (laughs) lovely chaps. Lee Rawlings of the Blue Box Podcast here. Can I just say thank goodness for you? When I... (laughs) This is ringing familiar. When I finally caught up with Bigger on the Inside and had to wait a thousand years between podcasts... (laughs) Wait a minute. For that is how I felt. I needed to fill the void with something a little different, but almost the same. Hurrah for you stealing the Obi-Wan and Pad 1 Sessor. This is the same email, Dave. I think that he must have got thought he got like a bounce back or something, because when he sent it to me, it was like, um, oh, it, it, it failed last time, so I'll try this address. Ah. So I think he must have been, for whatever reason, been under the impression that uh, his original email hadn't made it through. I see. So he picked you first. Possibly. Possibly. Um, okay. It counts on both sides. Counts, yeah, yep. counts on both sides. Yep, yep. That, and, that's a packer. And I still win. Um, yes. <laughs> although you did miss out his PS. He had a PS? By the way, I am only up to Shaken Blake number six. I look forward to you meeting Orak. Ah. Well, this is going to be a nice little time capsule for him when he gets there. <laughs> yes, I, I remember my first impressions of Orak. Yes. You're, you're in for quite the entertaining surprise. Hey! <laughs> uh, so, that, that's all the emails. Well, and a, and a bumper crop it was too. Indeed, so. Eleven, Excellent stuff. Eleven pieces of feedback. I'm a little overwhelmed. <laughs> Good stuff. Right, so, uh, first episode? Let's do it. Let's talk Moloch. Right, now then. No, Untie me, and then we can help each other. I never imagined you as the sort that would grovel for her life. I am not groveling, you fool. I mean it. You are groveling. I am not. They've got Tarrant. Now, I can show you where they're holding him. At least I can suggest where to start looking. Why should you want to? Because they're holding two of my pilots there as well. Now, are you going to untie me or not? Last time I saw Tarrant, I was looking down the end of his gun. So why are we on opposite sides? So, our first episode today is Moloch. Uh, in this episode, we get to see that the Liberator is chasing uh, another spaceship. It turns out to be Servaland's ship. And um, Villa notes, as he's handing around drinks, uh, that they've been following Servaland for the best part of a month. Um, and uh, Dana asks the very pertinent question is, why don't we just blast her out of the sky? Um, it turns out that um, Avon's kind of been stalking Servalan, um, because she's come a long way out uh, to the furthest reaches of the galaxy, 
and um, she's passed pretty much any tactically advantageous planet, or even just any planet, really. And um, this has piqued everyone's curiosity. And uh, so Blanchip just disappears into the darkness, and Zen has a very difficult time in uh, tracking it down, uh, because there is um, an energy field uh, nearby causing interference and uh, the Liberator zoom through this uh, energy field and they nearly collide with a planet uh, until some evasives is, there evasive steering uh, is taken. Meanwhile uh, this has been monitored by uh, two attractive women who are operating a, a radar uh, but they decide that it's more trouble than it's worth actually reporting it, so they raise the footage, and um, this gets uh, Pula uh, in trouble uh, with her superiors, to the extent that the fact that she's bluffing about it uh, is, is kind of found out by the uh, male leaders of the planet. Oh, it, 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 it's not Pula, it's the other one. Pula's the one who hangs uh, around. No, I, I think Chessel's the one that, that stays uh, till the end. I think Pula's the blonde one, Chessel's the brunette. I thought it was the other way around. Yeah, well... Goes to show how much attention I was paying, doesn't it? <laughs> Perhaps you just weren't paying attention to the names. <laughs> well, how, how nice to be accused of objectifying oh, women in the oh, city. So, well, that's, the <laughs> that's the theme of the episode. Pretty much. You've got tar me with such a brush, sir. <laughs> you're, you're better than the men in this episode, sir. Would be fucking difficult. <laughs> anyway, before we show our hand too much. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so, Pula, says I, uh, is, is dragged away and uh, given to the men of the uh, planet uh, just as Servalan arrives. And uh, she's come all the way out there to try and uh, take command of uh, a legion of uh, her space fleet um, because it has a very good reputation and um, apparently she really kind of needs it to to help uh, keep the Empire going. The Empire? The Federation. Um, And it quickly transpires that um, she's been led there under false pretenses, because this glorious legion uh, has pretty much diminished to a single ship. And the reason that uh, Servalan has been brought there is because the men uh, ruling uh, the planet have designs on uh, her own ship, and uh, so that they can um, essentially grow from there, because they have a fantastic cloning machine um, which can clone pretty much anything apart from uh, living beings, as they demonstrate very aptly with a mouse. Yeah, I don't uh, know where they got the mouse from. Well, <laughs> that's that's an ugly question. Sorry, that's <laughs> going to rear its head at some point. Right. Meanwhile, uh, the energy field is playing extreme havoc with uh, the teleportation. Uh, system on board the Liberator to the extent that it would be dangerous for them to try and teleport down uh, through the energy field because it might disrupt the beam. 
Therefore, uh, Orak suggests that instead that they teleport on board the shuttle that's going to pass through the energy field um, as the best means of actually getting in undetected. So, um, Terran wants to do this. Uh, Orak notes that it would take someone who's very good at unpicking locks to kind of see the plan uh, through. So, uh, Villa is kind of reluctantly dragged on, on board. Um, because of a teleportation fault, uh, they end up on either side of the kind of wall compartment that they were meant to stow away in. Uh, Villa is quickly befriended by a drunk uh, called Doran and uh, Doran and the, the rest of the crew uh, happen to be the remnants of a nearby penal colony and uh, they've come to be uh, freed uh, on board uh, well they've <laughs> this planet which is called uh, Sardos and um, yeah, essentially they're, they're being recruited, in a way, and so Villa falls in with them, Tarrant follows on later, and Villa finds his loyalties shifting a lot more towards these drunken, reprobate prisoners than Tarrant. I can't say I blame him, to be honest. Tarrant's still very keen to find out what's going on, uh, Villa isn't, and... Um, what is going on is that uh, Servalan has found out that on this uh, misogynistic planet, if you're a woman, you're in grave peril. And uh, once Grocer, the uh, commander of uh, the planet, kind of uh, makes his intentions clear about Servalan's ship, I, sh- I, <laughs> I should strongly point out, um, he then has... Uh, Servland friend to the men just before revealing that the original commander um was it uh, Astrid yes, or something yeah, like that? That, Colonel yeah. Astrid yeah um he uh, kind of um he hasn't been killed apparently he had undergone uh, some kind of accident but it turns out that um he hadn't but because of his relationship with the computer and it's um unique brand of artificial intelligence um, he, he went a bit mad and uh, it devised a, a punishment for him where he was uh, suspended in um, a life support machine in a kind of gigantic watery jar and made to look like an inflatable doll which yeah of course I mean if you go and you know spend that long in some water for a, a period of time you're always going to look like that aren't you I don't know, Dr. Stewart? <laughs> <laughs> That's Dr. Stewart, uh, correcting Ian's misinformed views about biology and medicine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's a question for you. If, you. if you're suspended in water for long enough, will you come to um, resemble some sort of crazy-haired sex doll? Yeah, will, will you turn white, essentially? Because uh, it happened to Nora Freeze. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> from uh, the very scientifically accurate film Batman and Robin. Anyway, anyway. Um, so, this leads to the unlikely team-up of Servalan and Villa. Uh, because um, drunken friend Doran essentially says, 
Well, Villa, I know you like women, so there you go. Happy birthday, essentially. <laughs> it's like the one woman that Villa really didn't want to see. Um, but she strikes a deal with him because she needs to get out of there because her pilot's being uh, kept hostage. And um, apparently Villa needs to find Tarrant, um, <laughs> which Villa isn't so sure about, which Servalan kind of enjoys. So they team up, especially in a kind of two-person ambush of an armed guard, um, <laughs> which uh, Villa, of course, completely bungles, and uh, Servalan actually saves his life. And then, just where it looks like she could kill him, um, she actually disappears. So, <laughs> uh, Villa and Tarrant meet back up, um, they get inside the base. Uh, they're joined by um, Chessel and Doran, who's gone out looking for Villa. And after the Liberator crew finally uh, kind of discover which frequency they need to teleport down there, uh, Avon and Dana go down and figure out um, the big plan involved. They get caught... Avon gets tortured, except he seems to enjoy it. Yeah, this is, that's not the face yeah. of a man being tortured, is it? Nor it's not the sound of a man being tortured. <laughs> <laughs> not against his will, anyway. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have nightmares. Um, oh. Anyway. Yeah, okay, okay. So... Oh. Okay, right. <laughs> so, um, everything comes to a violent head, um, pretty much everyone apart from the Liberated Crew either get shot or somehow killed by flashlight, um, before the door closes and the brain of the computer reveals itself <laughs> as, um, a rejected Fraggle Rock puppet. Uh, basically, it's like Colonel Sanders was reincarnated as a chicken in, <laughs> in some kind of cruel karma. Yeah, the ultimate irony. Yes. Yeah. So, somehow this thing has got its own teleportation bracelet. And, <laughs> oh, um... fuck's sake. <laughs> it impersonates Tarrant. To... <laughs> Just saying it out loud makes me realise how utterly ridiculous it is. <laughs> <laughs> Fools Callie to teleporting it up thinking it's Tarrant. <laughs> <laughs> and as and that causes it to die. Yep. And Callie looks horrified that this puppet just like <laughs> lies slumped on the floor. But part of me thinking like, what's happened to Tarrant? <laughs> I've killed him! Is that, is that Tarrant I've just teleported up? Oh, I've got the calculations wrong. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yeah, so that's something. Um, Avon clones uh, the remaining bracelet. So we've got, theoretically, we've got a bracelet count of about two. Because, um, let's see. Because Tarrant lose. Tarrant loses his. Yep. Villa has his taken away by Servalan. Yep. One gets shot off of a bench. Yep. Although, because in essence they're all replaced. 
They are. I mean, some are still lost, but new ones are generated. Yeah, so I, I think that sort of cancels out any potential bracelet count insofar that, you know, they, they still go back with I the, same, the same so. amount of bracelets they arrived. I, if I, not I see more. What... I mean, I'm sure they Abel could have knocked up a couple of hundreds to replace well, he, all the he, ones he they've lost have... so far. Well, that's the thing. He could have totted it up and said, yeah, I think we're down about 50. Um <laughs> Actually, count a bit longer than two minutes, please. <laughs> anyway, uh, they've been back up, and um, they then find out there's uh, a welcome distraction, so they don't have to look at this embarrassing thing on the floor. Um, it turns out uh, it's a fleet in an attack formation uh, ordered by Servaland. So in a very retro um, kind of move, uh, Avon takes Blake's usual strategy, and as much as said, get us out of here. Yep. So, um, so, that's how that one ends. And then presumably somebody has to find a dustpan to sweep up Moloch. <laughs> a special Enviro hazard bag. <laughs> Put him in the waste disposal suit. Yeah. Or maybe they had roast that night. <laughs> I wouldn't eat that. <laughs> so, Mr. Probert, what are you thinking? not best, is it? Um, it's a surreal episode. I mean, I have to say, going into this, I didn't remember a huge amount about it, apart from the fact that there was a ridiculous creature inside the machine. Right. And I'd forgotten quite how ridiculous it was. Yeah. But a lot of it, frankly, left a very bad taste in the mouth. It's got a very sinister undertone to it. I mean, it's a very misogynistic story. I mean, it's certainly that, I, yes. I certainly see what they're trying to go for. It's like you know, a bunch of um, sort of Federation grunts have found themselves sort of in charge of a fantastic machine and you know, they have ideas about their station and they're sort of you know, degenerating into unpleasant behaviour. Yeah. But still, Blake Seven has done this better before and it, it just feels like cheap shock tactics. Well, to a certain degree. I mean, things. I mean, yeah. I mean, Blake Seven has done shocking things before. I mean, they did shocking things in the way back. The very first episode, yeah. yes. But that was all implied, and served a bigger storyline. In so far, you know, it it was a very psychologically frightening idea. Yeah. That the Federation could do that to somebody. Yeah. Rather than just sort of like here, it just felt a bit exploitative. I mean, oh, maybe this is my uh, more moderate 21st century man eyes <laughs> viewing something from some, like the 1980s with you know, a bit more enlightenment. But right. yeah. I don't know, some of this just felt a bit off. And things like Doran as well. He's better be this sort of lovable drunk. But at the same time, <laughs> he, he's a violent criminal. And, he, and again, he turns very sinister when women are mentioned. Yes. I mean, there's this line, uh, well, this exchange between uh, him and Villa, and said, oh, my problem was always women. And so Villa naturally seems, oh, so you like women, do you? And then he says really coldly, no. And he's like, oh, okay, right. You know, he he could have been the one that got away from Gan. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, and and um, the fact that Villa meets up with Servalan because essentially, as far as Doran's concerned, he's he's giving Servalan to Villa to rape her. Yep. You know, it's just like, oh. The thing I th- 
the family of Sebastian. Because obviously I didn't have pre-knowledge of what Moloch was. Yeah. And I, I, obviously that, that taints the episode in a big way. Because... Well, on the grounds of it being crap. Yeah. It looks ridiculous. And, you know, sometimes there's good ridiculous and bad ridiculous. This was very much bad ridiculous. But, because I didn't have that in mind, it obviously wasn't at the back of my mind as I was watching the rest of the episode. Um, my problem with the episode isn't so much the undercurrent, because whilst it is very distasteful, it wasn't as front and centre as it could have been. True. You know, they didn't make a huge thing about it. I think the bigger problem was a lot of things just, like, were dropped, a lot of character points and a lot of plot points suddenly just didn't happen, or the story decided to, to go a different direction. Yeah. Um, think of Pula. I, Chess or whatever. The, the first woman. Yeah. Who gets sentenced. You see her going, Oh no! No, you can't do that! Please, Madam President, help me! And, you know, there's a, an implication that she's going to be sent off to be, um, you know, uh, sent, sent up to the men. Essentially. Yeah. And then you see her kind of waiting on the, the presidential table, and she doesn't have anything to say, really. Yeah. And then we never see her again. In fact, we don't find out who Pooler and Chessel are in relation to everybody else. So what are they even doing there? Are they are they the natives of Sardor? Are they people that the men brought with them when they serving on the ship? Who are they? Yeah. And they're the only two women you see. Yeah. And they're... You know, they're, they're interested to do a job, but highly distrusted at the same time. And if they put one foot out of line, well, you've, you've got that punishment to look forward to. Yeah. Um, it's like you think, why, why would those women work in that kind of environment? Unless they were forced to. Yeah. And even then, you never see, um, Pula getting replaced. No. As, it, as if it was a two-person job. Um, so that's Pula. And then you have Villa and his constant assortment of, uh, buddies. Um, because when they're down on the planet, um, Tennant meets back up with him. You know, he Ta- punches... Tarrants. Ta- what did I say? You said Tennant. Oh, right. Uh, <laughs> it's a faux pas. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tennant says Alon Z. <laughs> uh, no, uh, he punches, uh, Doran in the gut, and then forces Villa to come with him at gunpoint. And then you see Tant wandering off without Villa and getting shot. Whereas, uh, Villa's back with Doran. Somehow. Um, and then he's with Servalan, and then after she's got him held at gunpoint with a bracelet, she just leaves, and her departure is explained um, later on. It, it's done completely off-screen. It's just like, what happened here, Tarrant? Because he meets back up with Tarrant somehow. Because Tarrant has escaped somehow. Uh, yeah, and, and he's now in a Federation uniform. Yeah, we never see him captured. And um, Tarrant just says, oh, well, Severin had a bit of a shooting spree and left. Better just say, okay, fair enough. 
I'm sure there was one other aspect of it, but uh, that will do for now. So yeah. it, it's all over the place. The story. Now, I mean, it, it, it's a bit of a mess. I mean, yeah. like character motivations are just sort of pretty much non-existent. Mm. Sort of, we're bad men doing bad things, basically. We're just a bunch of thugs, and everybody else has got no reason to be there. It's all just not great. I will say I liked the overarching plot. Uh, well, the the overarching plot. The plan of Gracer. Yeah. I liked the idea that he would, you know, try and build up his forces whilst using this cloning machine. He wants a very good ship, so, you know, he gets uh, uh, Servland to come out. Although it's kind of revealed that Servland was actually just bait in order that uh, Moloch could get his hands on the Liberator. Yeah. And, you know, Avon deduces, ah, I see, so you're not actually in in control of your computer. And Grace doesn't take too kindly to that. Um, so it was, very, it was very interesting watching it play out. I just wish that was a bit more of a focus. Yeah, I mean, the problem is Gross doesn't come across as any kind of threat, really. I mean, yeah, he's a bit sort of thuggish and he does... He does have the upper hand, but at no point do you sort of feel that this guy's a serious threat to Servalan. Um, I don't quite agree. Servalan is at a disadvantage. Her position is at a disadvantage, but the way the character's sort of written and played, I, I didn't get a sense that, oh, you know, that this guy could best Servalan. It's like, yeah, that this guy's just going to get shot at some point. You know? Well... I don't quite agree because I think that he had this plan in his head and he executes it and it's really just the the bad luck of you know Villa pairing up with Servalan and the fact that they've got previous history because I don't think he was expecting the Liberator Cream. It was kind of um, bad luck. and It just for a spanner in the works. Moloch was but then Moloch was purposely freezing Grosser out. And it's only when you get the big head-to-head with um, Avon, who's like figured everything out, that Grosser starts to look a bit uncertain or a bit weak in his position, because Servalan is just as intelligent and ruthless as Avon is, but Servalan can't do anything about it. Yeah. So... I thought he was a fairly effective villain, or he flattered to deceive. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably the best way of putting it. And I was glad when he died. So, I think that makes an effective villain as well. That's fair enough. Yeah, I mean, overall for me, I just think the writing's all over the place. I tell you why it might be... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, there's lots of very interesting ideas here. The fact that yeah, they have access to this technology which can clone everything from like a small handgun to an entire ship. Mm. You know, the fact that this resource exists. And, and the idea of what Moloch is, the fact that he is the projected, um, a computer projection of a race's evolution made flesh. Yeah, yeah. But that's sort of barely touched upon. Avon explains it and deduces it. But after that, it's just sort of like, oh, and now here's a chicken man. <laughs> it's just like, there's, like there's, there is a decent script in here with some decent ideas but the writing is just so flawed mm. and at times frankly unpleasant to watch 
Now, on that note, the guy who wrote this is a chap called Ben Steed. He is, yes. Who also wrote The Harvest of Kairos. Ah. So, who was created for The Harvest of Kairos? I, I, I know where you're going with this. The ultra-male. The ultra-male Jarvik. An arguable misogynist. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. There, there are themes. And yet, The Harvest of Kairos was much better written. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that Ben Steed is a bad writer in general. I just think that, no. that, that this particular script, I don't think partic- works very well, you know? Then we've another draft. Yeah, certainly not as well as it could have done. Yeah, I, I, I think it gets distracted with its sort of. Uh, obviously, if if they had dropped the whole sort of uh, rogue platoons, you know, like grunts trying to take over the galaxy, if they'd gone with somebody like if Astrid had still been there, like you had like because like Federation commander type characters are usually much more interesting and much more devious, mm. and if it, if it'd been someone like that, luring Servalan out. And then looking to take over. Because you could believe that someone like that... So if it was someone more like Provine... Right, yeah. yeah if it had been a Provine-style character, sort of like who'd lured Servalan out, was intended to sort of take the Federation from under her nose and everything, mm. I'd, I'd have bought into it a bit more. Because, yeah, you know, it's a bit more of a culture of it, and a bit more like, yeah, someone who's clearly got you know, schemes and ideas and stuff. Yeah. Whereas with, uh, with Gross, I'd, I just... He just sort of came across as like a, a thug with a plan which probably wasn't even his. Yeah, you kind of got the feeling it was possibly Moloch's idea. I think it was very much Moloch's idea. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I, I'd have preferred somebody who was a bit more of a an intellectual equal to Servalan in terms of you know as a standoff, someone who could sort of like charm her and then pull the rug out from under her, rather than what we actually get. I mean, you say that, but I mean, we've had quite a few of those kind of characters already. But the thing and... is, they're always fun. Yeah, yeah. They're always like, like quite enjoyable characters. Whenever they get anybody like that in there, they're sort of like yeah, the the devious, eloquent, charming bad guy. Blake Seven does that very well. Yeah. And yeah, e- even if they're not necessarily a great threat, they're usually very entertaining to watch. <laughs> so with people like like Provine and Carnell and yeah. Those types of characters, yeah. I mean, th- those are ones that we've always sort of reacted to quite positively. Oh yeah, and you know, a case could be made for Jarvik, even though he's not quite as slimy or evil. No, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he, I think Jarvik had had he been more Jarvik-like, because even though Jarvik is much more, yeah, he's he's sort of much more primitive and he's. And not as sophisticated as someone like Provine or Carnell, you still got the sense that he was a man who could hold his own sort of intellectually as well. Yeah, you know, he was he was a strategist. He was a military man. Yeah, but he uh, he still held rank, but he was much more sort of down down with his men, sort of thing. You know, he, he was one of the lads as well as being like a commander. Yeah, which made him an interesting character. Oh yeah. Whereas like Gross just sort of comes across as like a thug who's got above his station. Which is an interesting idea. I just don't think it's executed particularly well. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I can see that because that is very much what what he was. Because yeah. Servlan, as much as says, you know, I I'd heard reports that uh, your loyalty was questionable. Yeah, and uh, she can see that for herself. 
let's just say I'm, I'm all right with the idea of the character in concept, but I don't think the execution worked as well as it could. Yeah, I, I think that's fair enough. And, um, Moloch. This is a what bit... What can you say? I can say the way. Nice way. idea. I mean, <laughs> we've not seen an execution of an alien character this bad since the web. With the, the head on the papier-mâché fetus in the jar. I tend to agree with that, I think. What is it about Deep Roy? <laughs> There's something about Deep Roy. Yeah, in, in Blake 7, you know... I thought he, he was in Gambit. That was a good episode. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. But then he wasn't wearing any prosthetics, though. No, no. D- they, they let him shine. No. Well, yeah. certainly not in Blake 7. Much better than no. the talent of Wen Chiang. Yes. I'll take your word for that. Honestly. I mean, for such a hyper-intelligent being, he... <laughs> well, I mean, he, it looks he ridiculous. He kills himself. It looks ridiculous wearing a teleport bracelet. Yes. At no point does he think, I'm actually integrated into this technology. If I teleport up, it's going, I'm not going to be in my life support system anymore. Which is stupid. Well, yeah, it, again, it, it's, it's the germ of a nice idea, but the execution's bad. Both in sort of con- like, yeah, the way it's executed in the script and the way it's executed on screen as well. I think it's a case of there are germs of lots of great ideas in here. But some need to be, like, they kind of need to be split into two separate episodes. Yeah, so everything feels a bit undercooked. Yeah. Although, I will say, I think we, we should talk about the one obvious high point of this episode. The the brief mismatched odd couple of Servalad and Villa. That is pretty good. It's, it's the fact that when Villa's sneaking up on the soldier, they're like an old married couple. <laughs> he's like, he's pointing a gun at him and like several lads in the background just miming, go on, go on, go kill him, get on with it. <laughs> She's quite clearly getting frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> I I love the fact that when they're having a roll around in a tussle, instead of picking up the gun, several lad picks up the rock that's next to the gun and clubs the other fella to death with it. It's like, there's a gun right there. Yeah. Pretty much tells you all you need to know, really. You're not telling me she was worried about hitting Villa. No, I. Although, had Villa been a bit quicker on his feet, perhaps he might have, you know, rushed her or something like that. So. But yeah, Villa would think twice before. I mean, yeah, she does end up getting the gun and getting the drop on him, but there was no guarantee. He'd be like, yeah, got over and got hit on the head straight away. And then, yeah. you know, if it had got up again, he could have just taken the rock off her. If you got, I mean, I suppose, like you say, it says something about Servalan's character that if she's got the opportunity to crush someone's skull into pulp at close quarters, <laughs> she'll seize it with both well manicured hands. Mm. But yeah, I, I, I did enjoy their their brief alliance. That was quite fun. Yeah, because you know, I mean, Servalan, you know, she's a recurring cast member, and it's it's always good to see how she you know, interacts with, you know, for the main crew. Yeah. Because obviously it began with, you know, brief flashes of her versus Blake, although it was mainly her playing off of Travis. And since then, it's kind of switched to her versus Avon. And, you know, she's come into contact with the rest of the crew from time to time. But for, for sharing, like, prolonged scenes, it is 
quite fun to watch Servland play off at Villa and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, they have had a couple of good exchanges this series. Yeah, um, but usually it's kind of like over yeah, teleports. Yeah. Uh, teleport, over uh, communicators. Well, yeah, I'd say that, that is... Face to face. I'd say that's definitely the one high point of an otherwise bit of a mediocre episode. Yeah, I'd, I'd go with that. Yeah. Well, should we, uh, should we go to some feedback for this, then? Let's do that. Uh, did you want to go first? I can go first. Uh, so this is Robin Barnard's email about Moloch, who says, Hi, Ian and Dave. Here are my random ramblings on Moloch. I was going to say that, for the most part, Moloch was reasonably okay, if rather unnecessarily overcomplicated hokum. And then I saw the last few minutes of the episode. <laughs> I almost cried with laughter at the so-called big reveal, as if the bloke floating about in water wasn't similar enough to the web. <laughs> we have Moloch himself a reject from Fraggle Rock. To s- I swear it's I did uncanny. not see that before. It's absolutely uncanny. I swear He's I did not see from the future. Wow. Oh, wow. he's a witch burn him (laughs) Robin if you can email me the lottery numbers (laughs) uh, I'd be muchly appreciated and the shot of him wearing a teleport bracelet was about five times too big for him was priceless (laughs) now those are your words there is no way he could have seen this Um, sorry, was this supposed to be a threat? Only to my lungs from laughing too much. (laughs) It reduced any need to focus on all the many, many dodgy plot moments and special effects in the rest of the episode to almost zero. But I suppose a mention has to go to Servland's ship, which looks like a scrudder from Red Dwarf, flying through space. It says here, scrudder. Yeah, they, they're called Scutters. Well, I, I've never watched Red Dwarf, so I don't know. Um, Coming soon, after Shake and Blake. <laughs> <laughs> I've had talk of people proposing that, but I think it'd be that much more difficult to do a, a comedy podcast, yeah, I mean, a podcast it, it, I mean, about a comedy uh, show. Yeah, I mean, co- comedy's a, a much more subjective thing, really, and, and there's not much to talk about it other than it made me laugh or it didn't. Or maybe it's a car-sized vacuum cleaner painted black. Or a special return appearance from the London. Yes, we do get to see that they, they wheel out the London stock footage again. Well, I, I mean, I, I suppose it makes sense, because it's it's a transport from a penal colony. Yes, no, I mean, it makes sense for the plot, certainly, but it always just makes me chuckle whenever we see the London... Because the London's showed up a lot. <laughs> during the it, it took part in the intergalactic war at the opening of this series, didn't it? It did, didn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the captain and his young second-in-commander still alive, seemingly. <laughs> Let's just say they certainly got their money's worth from that model work. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, the new gadget Servalan is here for. It's a replicator, due to appear in Star Trek The Next Generation making Earl Grey tea in the future. That's your link to mention the orgs this month. 
banking. Uh, <laughs> although, he did predict that the orgs were talking about Moloch. Burn the witch! <laughs> Don't. He's a very consistent feedbacker. But he should be. He's heard the show in the future. <laughs> oh, my word. Oh, my word. Someone fire the guy who did that puppet, as Serverland would say, at maximum power. Uh, I suppose it's not quite as bad as the web, which is shit. We don't get to see him until the end, and he's dead in seconds. That's his truth. Yes. But who the heck is going to clean up after him? Oh my good god! <laughs> Sorry to say that the character and the episode is indeed the rhyming slang I mentioned earlier. Yep. Actually, oh I, well. I, I did post that on Twitter after I watched it last night. It's like, <laughs> bollock, bollocks. Oh well, on to Death Watch. Let's hope it's not anything like Nature Watch. <laughs> Mollocks indeed, Robin. Yes. <laughs> so, thank you, Robin. Yes, thank you, Robin. And your amazing psychic powers. Yes. And when you take over the world, um, using your future knowledge, uh, <laughs> just, just just spare us a thought. Yeah, just make our deaths quick and painless. I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to be a bad thing. <laughs> it's not going to be like Back to the Future Part 2. I hope not. Well... <laughs> okay, so uh, Gareth has also sent us a feedback for Moloch. Good, good. He says, uh, so Avon has uh, taken to the Blake mentality and decided to pursue Serverland ship even if it's into an odd space effect. Mm. It turns out that the Supreme Commander is not here under 100% assured reasons, as the planet has a machine that can duplicate objects but not people. Is Serverland losing her edge, or is it because she's so far from the base that the Commander can easily get the upper hand? I have to uh, round of applause for the whole entire uh, Villa Serverland scene. This is uh, this had the good chemistry and funny style that is trademarks of both the characters. Caddy seems to be going back to her desk job again. <laughs> uh, overall, I like this episode. Even the odd-looking alien works. No, it doesn't. I'm, I'm sorry, Gareth, but but no, just no. <laughs> I, unless you've seen some. <laughs> Some sort of weird, digitally remastered version from the future, possibly provided by Robin. Hey, American Networks, guess on it. <laughs> a, a better version of Mo That'll pull in the punters. Yep. Moloch, just not shit. <laughs> oh, God, imagine if they remake the web. Oh, <laughs> I don't know where to begin. <laughs> Oh, that would get it cancelled for sure. I, I have to say, I'm um, discussing Moloch. I find it hard being too harsh him just because um, Martin Thompson, mm -hmm. who writes for Geek Planet Online, uh, when I first met him, his uh, internet forum handle was Moloch. All right. So whenever I start sort of like kicking down at Moloch, I always feel like a little bit like I'm kicking at Martin, even though it's the, the two are unrelated. He bears no resemblance to Moloch from Blake 7. Well, I mean... Oh, was he specifically referencing Blake 7, though? Uh, I think he may have been referencing Buffy, actually. Well, that's the thing, because, I mean, Moloch is a well-known um, biblical, at least. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a, an archaic form of uh, evil, in some way. Yeah. I, I remember being in a play 
called The Forcing of Baron Bollegrin. And uh, there was like an evil doctor called Dr. Moloch. Uh, <laughs> who, who got eaten by a dragon. Wow. Yeah. So that well, was a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, did somebody say replicators two emails ago? Oh, God. Why? Those are used in Star Trek The Next Generation. Who do we know that talks about Star Trek The Next Generation? Why? Wait, Dave. <laughs> Unless I'm very much mistaken. And I don't you, believe you are. You could be referring to the Reverend Org and his wife Anne-Marie. I could indeed. Wow. Shall we see what they have to say about Moloch? Oh, yes, let's. Hello. Hello. Thought we'd feedback on Moloch this time. Why? Because the machine they had, it reminded me of the chocolate biscuit machine in Bagpuss. What makes the chocolate biscuits? Put a chocolate biscuit on here. It slides down the chute. And we must bring it back again. So you used the same chocolate biscuits over and over again. That's right, over and over again. Over and over again. So it's all a trick. And that's just what it reminded me of, I'm afraid. It just made me think Bagpuss. Except, arguably, Bagpuss is rather more realistic than Moloch turns out to be. Yeah, what is up with that one-eyed... Muppet. Oh, Midget Muppet as well. It was tiny. It was just a, oh. And that bad cabbage patch doll in a tank. Oh, the guy who, the captain. Yeah. Who, from the Federation, who he punished by sticking him in. Doesn't look very good, does it? No. No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. And then, like, the resolution. Oh, yeah, teleport him because he doesn't realise that he's going to die if he's not part of the chocolate biscuit machine. Pretty poor. And the thing is, it's like, if you hadn't had the chocolate biscuit machine and the Muppet, right, that guy whose name I can't remember, section leader, whatever, I always want to call him section leader Clegg, and that isn't his name. But him, he is a nasty piece of work. And it sort of strikes me that Servalan has met a match in him, because, do you know what I mean? He's just sort of like, no, you're not having your ship, it's my ship now. And I'm just going to send you out to be played with by the men who are all criminals. I mean, you know, he was mm. a good villain. And I kind of felt the story had a lot more potential than 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 a chocolate biscuit machine and a Muppet, <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah, it all falls apart at the end, doesn't it? Just a bit. Just a bit. And I like Doram as well. Well, kind of, although he's obviously pretty creepy when it comes to women. Yeah, but I liked him as a character because... Mm. People are more rounded than that. You get people who are sick, who are criminals, who are perverts, who seem nice. You know, it's like they always used to say about the East End gangsters, isn't it? You know, he was always very nice to his mum. Well, I can imagine that Doran was always very nice to his mum. You know, I like it when characters are not cliches. Uh Uh-huh. And I just liked the baddies in this weren't cliches, and I liked that, and I thought the episode had a lot more potential than the chocolate biscuit machine from Bagpuss and a bad Muppet. Yeah. We get a nice cartwheel from Villa at the start. We do, yes. And did you notice, or did you notice, of course you did, all the Dana booby jiggling? Yes, yes, I think I probably did notice all the Dana booby jiggling. (laughs) (laughs) 
can't quite understand why they're stalking Serverland at the beginning of the story. They want to find out what she's up to. It's weird, isn't it, really, when you think about it? I mean, it's a whole big galaxy. I mean, whereas before it was Blake driving the plots and mm. wanted to overtake the Federation, understandable. Now it's like, what's their motivation? It all seems a bit odd, really. But there we go. And as Dana points out, they have a chance to blast her yet again, and they don't. It's just like, it's just how many times? How yeah. many times? Then you get a, not even a map painting, it's more a kid's crayon drawing. This is bad, isn't it? <laughs> it's really appalling. Yeah. We have Tarrant drawing a weapon on Villa, so that relationship's getting worse and oh, worse. Yeah. Poor old Callie gets left to man the teleporter again. Yeah, well, at least she hasn't got a headache. <laughs> at least they're not playing a ball game. Yeah, I think she only, she's only allowed to leave the ship when she has a headache and is possessed. Oh, okay. Serverland leaving a trail of dead bodies in her wake was quite good. Yeah. yeah. But other than that, yes, we're left with a Muppet Moloch. Yeah, who Avon really easily defeats. Yes, so not a great episode. No, no, not at all. <laughs> not great. But not it. as bad as Sarcophagus or oh, the Oh, that was just... I can't believe... Ian doesn't think it's that bad. It's the worst episode of anything ever. It's absolute bloody gobshite. There we go. Cheery bye. Bye. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, Ian, did did you notice the Dana booby jigglage? Um, perhaps just subconsciously. She, she does seem to be uh, sporting like a an outfit which a power girl would be adopting later on in her superhero <laughs> career. Yes. She's pioneering the booby window. Yes. That's fair, that's fair to say. Yes. <laughs> well, Anne-Marie I mean, I, I, Anne agreed with me about the villain. No, I, I, I do sort of take the point that, yeah, that there is a bit more sort of com complexity with Doran and everything, but, yeah, I sort of take the point that if they didn't have Moloch in it, if it was just the fact that it was just Grocer who got hold of this like replicating technology and was just looking to take over the Federation. I think that would have been a better story than throwing Moloch in there. Yeah, I, I, I think if there's one thing you could have cut, it's the title character of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just call it something else, Absolutely. like Roser or the, the random raping ranch or something like that. So, <laughs> that well, that probably wouldn't Make it past the senses, but uh, no, yeah. And sarcophagus is not the worst thing ever. Although I'm struggling to come up with something. Well, the web's worse <laughs> because <laughs> hey, Dave, the web. But it's shit, yeah, it's isn't it? rubber ship. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I think we should possibly move on to the <laughs> next episode. Don't you? Sounds like a plan. Let's stand Death Watch. Madam President. I see the Aura computer has broken our latest security code. A useful gadget worth every penny you almost paid for it. Wasteful of you to let me know the code was broken, sure. I thought you'd see me more readily if you thought I was part of the conspiracy. Conspiracy? Oh, Avon. I haven't gone and given myself away again, have I? I've been doing a little strategic analysis. Bravo. Somewhere along the line, there is going to be a major violation of the convention. Really? Well, I'm glad you warned me. Because as neutral arbiter, such violations are my concern. The result will be total war between these two systems. Real war, not children's games like all this. 
You will let them fight it out for a little while, and then your battle fleet will move in to mop up the remnants. For their own good, of course, to prevent further bloodshed and destruction. The civilian populations may even welcome you. What form will this major violation take? Do they know that your battle fleet is massed on their borders? Routine maneuvers and a small demonstration of concern for my personal safety, which both sides understand and accept. Thank you. For what? Answering my question. I have nothing to hide. Is that why you answered? Naturally. Oh, no, not naturally, Madam President. You do not naturally answer a question from an enemy who has no natural right to ask it. But I don't think of you as an enemy, Avon. I think of you as a future friend. Your plan had better be fireproof, Servalan, or I'll see you burn with it. Callie. Yes, Avon? I'm ready to come up now. Stand by. Threatening an arbiter is a violation of the convention, you know. So report me. I'll overlook it this time. After all, it's not a major violation. Okay, then. Uh, second up is Death Watch. Uh, Mr. Probert. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to explain why this might be um, a bit different from our usual synopses? Uh, yeah, I, I thought I was synopsizing Moloch. <laughs> so I took really detailed notes for Moloch. My notes for Death Watch aren't as extensive. Right. Oh, well. So I might get a little bit lost halfway through and be shouting for help, but let's let's see what happens, shall we? Yep. Best of British. Yep. So we uh, we start on a uh, a ship, and uh, on it is a man who looks a lot like Tarrant. And uh, two people try to kill him, and it turns out that uh, Teal has declared war with Vandor. And uh, this person, who is called Dieter, is the champion of Teal. Uh, on the Liberator, the crew are sort of arguing with each other and getting a bit tetchy. And Vinna comes in with Orak, and Orak tells them all that uh, because they're so sort of stressed and they haven't had a holiday in a while, that their efficiency isn't as good as it used to be. <laughs> and so uh, Vinna has uh, done a little bit of research, apropos of nothing, obviously, and discovered that Teal and Vandor have declared war on each other. Now, this is a good thing, because when Teal and Vandor declare war, it's party time! <laughs> awesome. Because Teal and Vandor don't go to war as nations, or as, in this case, sort of like empires. They have uh, a war of champions. A, a champion of Teal and a champion of Vandor uh, fight to the death, and whoever wins that battle is declared the winner of the war. Yeah. So, to, to celebrate an imminent holiday, the crew of the Liberator immediately throw an impromptu cocktail party on the bridge. <laughs> uh. And uh, Avon asks Orak to uh, put up the uh, the local television broadcasts of the lead-up to, uh, to the war. So, we get a, uh, a presenter uh, explaining that, uh, basically, there is a, a simulated environment which the computer provides, which can simulate any kind of conditions... 
and uh, the combatants won't know those conditions until they're inside the environment. Their only clues might be in a uh, equipment locker provided, which will give them specialist equipment depending on what they might need once they're inside. Now, it turns out that uh, this Dieter character, who Villa's going, I, I swear I know him, and uh, Dieter is Tarrant's brother, Tarrant's elder brother. Mm. And Dieter Tarrant is champion of Teal. Now, there are three Arbiters for this contest. There is an Arbiter from Teal, an Arbiter from Vandor, and a Neutral Arbiter, who in this case is Sir Valan. Uh, yes, so uh, it is considered, like uh, Tarrant says, that from a dispassionate point of view, Sir Valan's an ideal choice because the Federation borders on the empires of Teal and Vandor. The crew decide to go onto the planet and enjoy the party. Apart from Callie, who decides to stay behind and operate the teleport. Yeah. She chose to. Yeah, yeah, it was her choice. Yeah. <laughs> Take that, feminists. Yeah. <laughs> Although when Villa gets down there, he says the like the place is sort of uh, dead and not much going on. Uh, Avon pays a vi- visit to Servalan. <laughs> his, his sick friend. Yes, he says he's going to visit a sick friend, and he, he goes to see Servalan. Basically, he uh, calls her on her plan and says that because uh, this contest is based on a very strict treaty, and if there's any violation of that treaty, the two empires will go to real, actual war. And so Avon says that Servalan is clearly uh, planning to have some sort of major violation of the treaty. Tila Vandal will go to full-on war, and when things get really bad, the Federation will come in, mop up the mess for their own good and will essentially take over both territories. Servalan's basically like, I don't know what you mean. And Servalan uh, is basically grabbed by Avon and the two kiss. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And uh, Avon disappears. Uh, Now, the other thing that is apparently a deal with this combat is that uh, both combatants have a uh, sort of a neural net implanted in them and anybody can put a little disc on their forehead and experience the battle from the point of view of either combatant. Avon assumes that Servalan is up to no good, so he gets Aurak to run a simulation of what you would do if you were a prejudiced or hostile arbiter. So he gets uh, Dana to experience the combat from the point of view of Tarrant's opponent, who is a, a man called Vinny. And uh, Tarrant experiences it from his brother's point of view. So, out of all the exotic possible locations for this battle to take place, we've been shown sort of jungles and beaches and ice plains and stuff like that. The battle actually takes place in a disused warehouse. Gosh. Yes. And uh, In fairness, co- that's no different to any first-person shooter nowadays. No. <laughs> it's not exactly Call of Duty, is it? <laughs> so, uh, Vinny offers... Um, Tarrant to, instead of the pair of them stalking each other, that they just do a uh, they stand in front of each other and have basically a quick draw competition uh, which Dieter loses and he's shot by Vinny uh, Dieter is dying and uh, shares his last thoughts with Tarrant even though he knows everybody else is sort of uh, watching and then Vinny kills him but uh, afterwards uh, Dana says that uh, Vinny had no no instinct. The reason Avon wanted to, uh, Dana to experience uh, Vinny's version of the uh, the battle is because Dana is a natural fighter. So he wanted to see what Vinny's instincts were like from the point of view of someone who is a natural fighter. 
And Dana says that he had no instincts at all. He wasn't sort of planning ahead. He wasn't strategizing. He was just reacting to things happening. But he was super confident in the uh, in the quick draw. Uh, Orac correctly surmises that Vinny is actually a highly sophisticated android, programmed to believe that he is human, and that Servalad is going to exercise her right as neutral arbiter to demand a medical a full medical workup, and then when it's revealed that uh, Vinny is an android, that will be a violation of the treaty, and the two empires will go to war. So, realising that they need to stop that from happening, uh, Orak points out that uh, as Tarrant was uh, Deez's brother, he has a right to challenge Vinny on the rights of, uh, I think it's like a, a blood feud. Yeah. So, Tarrant makes the challenge. Uh, Dana is said to stop Servaland from performing uh, the medical, but with strict instructions not to kill Servalan, even though we, we have been reminded that uh, Servalan killed her father. So uh, Dana teleports down, blows up the medical scanner before it can be used, points a gun at Servalan. Uh, she's eventually kicked off the planet, but it's not considered a major violation because, it, uh, according to their law and their treaty, uh, Dana has a blood feud with Servalan, and she didn't kill her. So it is considered that uh, she's given a... a a smack on the wrist, told not to go back to the planet, and is sent back to the Liberator. Now, uh, bef- before Tarrant goes down to take on the challenge, uh, Avon says to Tarrant, I hope you don't share your brother's objection to uh, cheating <laughs> and, un- and underhand deals, which Tarrant goes, God, no. <laughs> so uh, they use Orac to uh, scan the computer that is randomly picking the environment, and then once they find out what the environment is, Callie telepathically lets Tarrant know uh what the environment is, how long he's got before Vinny shows up, and where he needs to be in in the time in the intervening time. He's basically told he's got sixty seconds to get to the centre of the environment. That environment, and remember, this combat can be taking place absolutely anywhere. It's the spaceship set we saw at the start of the episode. <laughs> Tarrant gets the drop on Vinny and shoots him with uh, one of Data's experimental guns, which actually vaporizes him, so there's no body to examine. They explain all of this to uh, Dieter's uh, assistant, Max, who's a diplomat for Teal, who, uh, who is the man who is uh, standing what they call Death Watch. In, in, in other words, he's working as an assistant to the champion. And so uh, Avon suggests, <laughs> he says that their legal expert, Orak, <laughs> uh, suggested that because uh, Servalana's neutral arbiter demanded a medical, and that medical was never carried out, that technically speaking, the, uh, the original contest is null and void, so they can uh, demand a rematch. And he also suggests that they use their uh, their veto to uh, replace Servalana's neutral arbiter, and they also that they should demand a medical for a full medical for both combatants before the combat takes place. That's just common sense. Yeah. Max goes off to organise all of this and says he'll be back in a bit. Avon says to Tarrant, actually, we should probably go. And Tarrant asks why. And Avon says that, that it's because Orak has also pointed out that because he killed Vinny, Tarrant is now the official champion of Teal. So the two of them call for a, called Callie for a beam out at the same time in a hilarious comedy ending. And that brings us to the end of the episode. It does. Mr. Wilson, your thoughts on this? Uh, pretty good. Overall, um, it kind of reminded me of Duel. There, is, there are elements of other episodes of this. There is definitely a bit of Duel in here, and uh, bits of uh, Project Avalon. What the like the use of androids? Yeah, yeah. Although clearly, android technology has got 
uh, come on a bit. <laughs> it's the rather wooden Avalon to sort of... Yes. So they've clearly mastered how to program an arrogant prick. <laughs> oh, because <laughs> Vi- oh, Vinny is a douchebag. Oh, absolutely. Now, I've got to say, I really like this episode. Yeah. And it's a Chris Boucher as well. I mean, Chris Boucher's been knocking about the park recently. Hasn't he, Jess? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I'll say this. Um, this episode did something that I don't think any previous episode has ever been able to do thus far. Um, it made me like Tarrant. Well, yeah. Actually, you know what? It made me like Dieter Tarrant more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because we should possibly point out that Stephen Pacey plays both Tarrant and Dieter Tarrant. Yes. Um, and it, I, I, I think it just shows that all of Tarrant's character faults aren't Stephen Pacey's fault. Oh, no. No. Because he's really good as Dieter Tarrant. So, can't, can't we have Tarrant killed off and have Dieter <laughs> Tarrant part of the crew? But, and the thing is, I mean, he plays it differently enough that you know that the difference between Dieter and Dell isn't simply a wig. Um, yeah. It's very much the personality of the older brother is a lot more calm and measured. He's more world-weary, I'd say. He, yeah. He's seen a lot more sort of personal combat. I mean, you know, it's established that he's been Teal's champion for four years and has killed a lot of people in that. Yeah. And and there are some sort of... He does have some wonderful moments, like when Servalan says, oh, do you not have a brother? And he goes, oh, yes, I've not seen him for years. And he says, oh, well, he left Earth as well. Maybe he's gone to follow your path. And he goes, and Dita just sort of looks a bit melancholy and just says, well, I hope not. And yeah, it's just really, really well played. And he actually has quite a touching death scene as well, because it's all sort of done from his point of view, so we're just sort of looking up. But yeah, you hear sort of Dieter's voice and sort of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, you have to hear this with with the millions eavesdropping and yeah, that I missed you and all this sort of thing. And it's actually quite quite touching. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, A, Dieter is a very good character, and I think it shows that Stephen Pacey does have acting jobs. And, you know, arguably a lot more effective than the meeting of uh, Callie and Zelda. Oh, yes, definitely. Even the, I mean, that there are similarities there as well. Yes. Um, again, a, a member of the Liberated crew loses a sibling. Yes. Um, and we're, we're also reminded of the fact that Dana's lost her father as well. I mean, there's yeah. a moment where um, the villain describes Servaland as... Serverland's only rule is uh, don't shoot a blind man in the back. Whoopsie daisy. Yeah, and to be fair, like Villa is sort of like, yeah, he feels awful when he realizes what he said and he yeah. does apologize. Yeah, he does. So that yeah, it's not sort of played up for love. Oh, Villa, you wag! It is that yeah, it genuinely hurts Dana, and and Villa is mortified when he suddenly realizes what he said. Yeah, but it's it's nice to see that yeah that's still an ongoing thing and it's it's being played up. Well, that's the thing because I I think I mean obviously um. Boucher's the script editor, so he's yeah. he's got one eye over the the series as a whole. And, you know, we're being reminded of things about Dana's character that have been overlooked in previous episodes. Definitely. Um, you know, because that, that is Dana's whole reason for being on board the Liberator. Um, Servaland killed her father and, and foster sister. Yes. And, um, you know, she she wants vengeance, and I mean, even her fighting is brought up. They get that's that's something that's been downplayed quite a bit. I mean, yeah, Dana's natural ability as as a fighter. Yeah, I mean, not since Harvest of Kairos has she really kind of shown that. 
Yeah. Um, but in fairness, they, they've remembered that she, you know, can just make weapons out of thin air. Yeah. Like a black female MacGyver. Uh, <laughs> with, with a Power Girl suit on. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is a very strong episode for her as well. Well, it's a strong episode for everyone, I think, because everybody gets their little moment in the sun, even though Callie is you know, basically space receptionist again. Like, towards the end, the ending relies on everybody playing to their strengths. Yeah. Avon, comes, Avon comes up with a plan. He uses Orac to scan the computer. Callie sends the telepathic message to Tarrant. Dana makes the gun. And Tarrant uses it. The only one who doesn't actually bring anything to the table in that plan is Villa, but that's, and that's just because there's nothing that needs unlocking. Yeah. You know, v- Villa isn't crowbarred into the plan just to give him something to do. It's it's all really, really well worked together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think this is an absolutely belting episode. It's really, really good. I mean, like, the plot makes sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting idea, the, the idea that you know, these two great space empires, instead of sort of having genuine wars... Have yeah you know, these two, like you know, essentially gladiators, have have a fight to the death, and that decides their war. Like Max says at one point, um, yeah, you know, whoever loses, they have to give up like like a third of their fleet and three of their planets, and you know, and they you know, the result is taken very very seriously. Yeah, and there are some little character moments as well, not just from the main cast or or even some of the featured cast we're talking about, but there's a scene where the producer of the programming and the announcer having a kind of bitchy cat fight. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Again, it's, it's another one of those sort of, you know, I've often said before, the Blake Seven and the little guy moments. Yeah. You know, people who have no major significance to the plot, but it just adds background and it just adds, you know, a bit more depth to everything. I mean, even... But you've got this sort of camp bitchy producer. <laughs> And the equally camping bitchy announcer. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, even the way that uh, Dieter's introduced, uh, the Carla woman, uh, the, who's one of the assassins sent after Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very small role, but, you know, it, it does its job, and, and it puts over Dieter almost immediately. Absolutely. I mean, in the first five minutes, you like Dieter way more than you've liked Tarrant after a good 12 episodes. <laughs> True enough. And you're genuinely rooting for him as well. But then, I mean, the thing is, I mean, I think Dale Tarrant's character is meant to be unlikable. Um, I, is it Gillian who calls him, like, not Blake? Or... Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> I mean, because, <laughs> I mean, Blake got more and more unlikable as, as the series went up, but that was more through his fervour um, than it was... I, I, I don't. I don't know quite how to finish that sentence. But well, with... he, he's sort of like Blake without the idealism or the, or the cause. Yes. Like if Blake didn't have a cause to fight, it was purely out for himself. Yes, he would be a lot like Tarrant. But what made Blake interesting was the fact that he did have a cause, and what he was prepared to do to win that cause, and yeah, the bad choices he made. Yeah. Whereas with Tarrant, he just comes across as a bit of a prick. He's he's much more horsey as well. Yeah, so yeah, he's much more sort of officer class. Yeah, yeah. That, that kind of sort of a sense of arrogance and entitlement about him. Yes. But again, here he, he he's a lot more likable. I mean, like you know, he he's it's so well played that moment when you know, 
just after he's experienced Dieter's death. And like, because there was an earlier scene when Vinny's calling Dieter out, and Dieter does have the drop on him and could have shot him in the back, but oh, doesn't. Yeah. And um, Taron just sort of, yeah, like, you can tell he's holding back the tears. He's sort of saying like, he, he, he should have killed him when he had the chance. Dieter was never very practical. Yeah, uh, it's it's really powerful, uh, and it's frustrating as well. Because I mean, that was exactly my reaction. It's just like shoot the annoying prick and be done with it. Because... But you know, Dieter's D- 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 a man of honour, and if he's got a chance to prove himself in a quick draw, which you know, under any normal circumstances, Dieter would have won. Yeah. I mean, we've seen he's quick on the draw already when uh, he um, pulls the gun on what's her name, Kara, or Carla. the woman at the start, yeah, Carla. Carla. Yeah, because like she pulls a gun on him and he outdraws her. So, yeah, you have every reason... He'd have every reason for thinking he'd win that going in. But, yeah, he, he's not the kind of person to shoot a man in the back. Yeah, he, he'd rather sort of face a man sort of face-to-face and everything. Whereas he possibly couldn't say that about his younger brother. No. Not at all. Well, I, I mean, mean Tarrant does have a sense of honour, but not to the same extent. He, he has a sense of loyalty to other people. Well, because, I mean, the reason I, I say that is because I'm just thinking about Jarvik again. Yeah. Well, I suppose so, yes. Yeah. Although, he, he will rely on a sense of honour to sort of ride other people. I mean, like, yeah, when he sort of says, oh, you're going to hide behind a woman to take our bracelets and <laughs> time changes people. Yeah. That's not so much Tarrant's sense of honour, that's, that's him sort of poking at Jarvik's sense of honour to get a rise out of him. Yeah. And, and also to get him to let Dana go as well. Avon, that confrontation between Avon and Servalan. Oh my! It's just amazing. I mean, like, there's electricity in the room from the moment Servalan turns around and sees Avon there. Yeah. That that whole future friend business. Oh, it it is really well written and is played to the fore by both uh, Jacqueline Pierce and Paul Darrow. Who are clearly having a ball. They've been given some really, really good lines and some good moments together, and they've just sort of taken the ball by the horns, and they're really going for it. Yeah. So to speak. And again, the bit when Avon kisses Servalan when he's in the middle of threatening her, and it's out of left field. But you sort of, they've really, I've kind of enjoyed how they've played up the antagonism, but at the same time, the sexual tension between Avon and Servalan. Yeah. I mean, it makes for a much more interesting um, sort of like. Anti-hero and villain relationship. Oh yeah, so those, you know, that were, were these people ever on the same side, they would rut each other senseless. <laughs> yes. One thing though about Avon. Yep. Why was he wearing Yorkshire puddings on his shoulders? <laughs> he he was wearing sort of like American football pads on his shoulders, wasn't he? Good lord. <laughs> it's an outfit that meant business. <laughs> Yeah, out of business, maybe. I do love the fact that Aurak was complaining about basically being used as a Sky Plus box. <laughs> He's a bit annoyed about that, isn't he? Um, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. It's just as well they didn't have a lightning storm and the signal therefore goes. And... <laughs> I swear, we, we had, um, well, we had, we had one today actually, uh, up in Newcastle. We've had back to back thunderstorms, uh, and light flooding. And uh, I was trying to watch the Olympics whilst uh, having my pub grub, and the signal completely died. Oh dear! Believe in better. Uh, damn you, Murdoch! <laughs> I've, no, I've got a friend who works at Sky Sports News. I texted him saying, "I'm not impressed. 
I'm not. <laughs> I'm not believing in Britain at the moment. <laughs> to the BBC. But that's no. That's the thing because it was on a Skybox, but it's, it's all BBC coverage. Yep. So Sky screwing over the BBC. Yep. Bastards. Anyway. Okay. So, well, that's a tangent. Yeah, uh, but, yeah, I mean, fairness to Orak, um, he's been given other things to do whilst still acting as the Skybox. But, uh, <laughs> it did sort of remind me of those um, uh, Connect adverts for, you know, where people go, like, Xbox on, Xbox play film. <laughs> well, like, Vin is going, turn the volume on, turn the volume off. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the little TV show things were, were quite good. I mean, I, I did, it, as I mentioned in the synopsis, I did sort of love the fact that we were showing all these exotic locations that could possibly use, be used as fields of battle. The fact that, you know, the, the lockers might contain specialist equipment, like, you know, if you might be fighting underwater, there might be a scuba tank, or there might be skis or something, you know, give you some clues to where you're fighting. And and we're in a disused 1980s warehouse. So if they ever had a chance to have, to use contemporary London... Yeah. Well, it's just like one of those things. Like as soon as you see that, you think, "Oh, you're not going to be able to back that up, are you?" <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely idea, but but you're really not going to be able to back it up because you're using the, your only piece of location filming for the episode and the set you used at the start. Yeah. Which again, yeah, for budget reasons, you could understand. But it's like when it's when it's played up, it's like this could be taking literally anywhere. Is that? Yeah, it, it's not going to be literally anywhere. It's, it, it's probably going to be used one of the other sets and wherever they happen to find to film it. Yeah. I mean, what did you think of the whole um, like experiencing the point of view of the fight? Well, the whole sort of virtual reality kind of thing. That was interesting. Um, it's not. I mean, first person isn't something they've really done before. I, no. I can think of two instances. One is the web. <laughs> Everything say, comes back to the web. On a long enough time scale, everything comes back to the web. That's right. Although, I mean, as I said, that was the bit I kind of liked. Yeah. Um, that bit. And then there was the murder mystery one, which was... Uh, Mission to Destiny. That's the one. But so, so, yeah, so we haven't really seen it since um, the first season. And I sort of like the reasoning behind it as well, because uh, when it suggested it might just be sort of voyeurism like Max says so that it's the fact that it's so all the people could feel like they've participated in the war but they they only lose one person or so only one person gets killed but they all have the experience of having fought the war yeah which I, I thought was a, again it's a really nice idea it explains it, it it explains its presence not just for for the purposes of the plot but also kind of culturally as well yeah so it also sort of makes sense I mean I, I honestly cannot fault this script no. I can't find can't find any uh, no real holes in the plot. Well, certainly not nothing gaping. Like, everything is just really tightly put together. Serverland's plan is you know it, it's good. It makes sense. I mean, I, I suppose like, yeah, it, it, it's a bit of a convoluted thing to have to build an exact android replica of a human being that thinks it's human and to do all that business. But uh, apart from that, I mean, like the basis of the plan to destabilize the war and so the Federation could mop up after they fought each other in a real war. It's, it's a really, again, it's a nice idea. It's a very Serverland-style plan. Yeah. And also, the Liberator genuinely foils it as well. Yeah. yeah if, the, if the Liberator crew hadn't got involved, she would have got away with it. And so you know, it, the Liberator crew are presented with a problem. 
it's stopping Servalan from expanding the Federation and causing these two people, these two sort of you know, great empires to go to war. And they, you know, they're presented with that problem and they stop it. You know, they win. Yeah. It's an emphatic victory. Obviously, apart from you know, the the death of Tarrant's brother. <laughs> but, um... Apart from that. And, and I, I did love, like, yeah, for all of, um, like, the antagonism between Tarrant and Avon up to this point, that little exchange when Avon just sort of says, like, uh, I take it you don't share your brother's scruples about cheating and <laughs> doing what you had to get ahead. And, no, and like, Avon's sort of sinister little smile. Like, okay. Oh, yeah, oh, <laughs> I've, I've watched this in parts twice, in both times. That's that's had me cracked up. Yeah. <laughs> and Avon, yeah, Avon's a real leader here. Yeah, he, he's the person coming up with the plan. He suspects something is wrong. He's getting Orak to investigate. He's confronting Servalan as the villain. Yeah, he, he's fulfilling the role of leader here. And uh, very craftily influencing the way that the situation resolves itself to um, I think the guy's name's Max yeah uh, said yes our legal advisor yeah. Borak <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that him and Tarrant share a significant look at each other when he says that as well <laughs> Tarrant's going like oh what now got to up with some kind of cover yeah yeah I'd I think this is an absolutely belting episode. It's one of the strongest this season. Yeah, easily, easily. It, it, it's in the conversation for uh, sort of like the, the better episodes of the series. Yeah. I mean, I remember it being good. I just I'd forgotten how good. It beats Marlon, put it that way. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it's, it's always nice that if we do get a duff episode, at least we get like, a good one to go with it, rather than having to do, uh, discuss two clunkers. Oh yeah. Especially with the good ones at the end as well, because we had a bit of a high note rather than starting positive and just going, oh, God, it's all shit, isn't it? <laughs> it's all fucking awful. Why do we do this month after month? Because usually those are your episodes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. I th- that must be why I naturally thought I was doing Moloch, because I knew that was the shit one. <laughs> oh, this is the shit one. I must be synopsizing this one. <laughs> It makes sense when you put it like It does. So, uh, do, do we have anything else to add here, or should we go to the feedback? Okay, so I'll do Garrus first this time around. Okay, so Death Watch. Uh, Chris Boucher gives us a Chris Boucher style episode with a clone stroke twin and sister stroke brother trope thrown in. Uh, it seems to be a staple of Mr. Boucher's episodes all the way back to Clone Master Fen. <laughs> to, to anyone's speakers we've just blown out I'm very sorry yeah. <laughs> right, if you haven't been listening to the podcast for long uh, that's a reference to a previous episode <laughs> that's the introduction of uh, Cosplay Travis isn't it it is yes <laughs> stage is set the yes. vocals come up. <laughs> the curtains fly back. And there because he is. Because Master Fed is wearing them. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to see Tarrant play uh, Tarrant. Come to think of it, Dieter and Del aren't that different. Both are uh, arrogant and self-assured. Uh, I, I would say there are differences. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I think the way um, 
Dita was dressed, he, it, sort of, it just sort of made him look bigger and bulkier. When you see Tarrant sort of show up in his sort of usual sort of Tarrant style outfit, he looks much more sort of athletic compared to Dita. I go with that. Yeah, I think that there's something that Stephen Pacey's doing is that he just holds himself a bit differently as Dieter. Yeah. And he says, "I'm glad the plot called out the fact that the combat zone uh, could be on an Earth-style plant, Earth-style place. Otherwise, I well, would have said it wouldn't have convinced." Uh, talking of convincing, enter Servalan, and she's loving the setup. Uh, plant a robot, start a war. I'm glad that they're reusing the teal star set for the second time. As for the rest of the episode, it's not too bad. Sorry it's so short, but uh, time got the better of me. Uh, thank you for that, Gareth. Now, let us hear from the seer of seers. Okay. Right. The voice of the future. <laughs> Hi, Ian and Dave. Here are my thoughts on Death Watch. Oh no, it's a Christ Belcher episode starring cosplay Tarrant. <laughs> if anyone isn't going to tell me what's going to go on here, then I'm going to get very irritated, says Dana. <laughs> Has she never heard the expression ignorance is bliss? Anyway, they got the peanuts and crisped out as well as the booze, as the contest is explained. <laughs> I, I love that it, just, it, just, it cuts away and it cuts back to the Liberators conversation pit and they're just having a, like a, a really 1980s cocktail party they, <laughs> they got the volivons out and stuff i tell you what um, Callie's saying I'll, I'll stay behind um, you see West, West Miller's kind of pleading to come up you see Callie's helping herself to all the alcohol <laughs> Actually, I did love that little sequence when Callie said she was going to stay on the ship. Yeah. And Villa goes, well, how is that a break? And she goes, oh, because well, yeah, you won't be here. And then very playfully, sort of, Villa sort of chases <laughs> after her and she runs away. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I like about the episode as a whole. Is like, we've had this all unremitting sort of conflict and unpleasantness. And, like, this was a fun episode. Yeah. So, yeah, there were still sort of crew conflicts and stuff like that. But it was, there's been some episodes this series that it felt so laden with, uh, you know, doom and sort of everybody doesn't get on and everything and here it was just such a breath of fresh air it's kind of like because uh, this is like the penultimate episode of the season isn't it? it is yes it's bit, it kind of reminds me of Gambit because yes. that was a very kind of free spirited episode before the kind of two parts were at the end yeah um, yeah so that's round to Steve uh, let's <laughs> let's see. Uh, the contest is explained. A kind of Britain's Got Talent, only to the death. And what is said on the first vidcast? Space, the final frontier. That sounds rather familiar. I do have that in my notes, actually. Yeah, well, it, it's an obvious nod, isn't it? It's, <laughs> the, there's, the, that can't be confused as a nod to... to anything other than Star Trek. On the judging panel, instead of Simon Cowell, we have Servalan. <laughs> she doing here? Getting snogged by Avon, apparently, who has the idea that Servalan wants to wipe out everyone. Has it? <laughs> by using a robot as an assassin, which manages to kill cosplay Tarrant in a rather brutal fashion. Of course, the real Tarrant gets a chance and turns the table. Overall, this was a pretty gripping and engaging episode 
with cool gunfights and some great character building. It's a pretty neat trick to give Terran's character a lot more depth whilst hardly featuring him at all. If it was just a little less convoluted, it would be perfect. Still, ten times better than that other episode you mentioned earlier in the podcast. Onwards to Terminal and the conclusion of Series 3. So thank you very much, Robin. Yes, thank you very much, Robin. Right, so uh, are we pretty much done with this one? I would have said so. Right. Let's bring on the Who Count! was a major Shap in the Armageddon Factor. Deep Roy, <laughs> who was Moloch, was uh, Mr. Sin in the Talons of Wen Shiang. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Clamp, who was a convict, oh, here we go. was a guard in the Mask of Mandragora. Mm-hmm. Mr. Stuart Fell, Hooray! who was a guard, was just in loads, loads of dogs, yeah. all the who. All the who. <laughs> uh, Mr. Steve Ismay, who was a convict, <laughs> was a guard of the Deadly Assassin, a guard in the Monster of Peladon, and an Exelon in Death to the Daleks. Uh-huh. And Keith Norrish, who was a guard, was a brother in the Mask of Mandragora and a Thal officer in Genesis of the Daleks, which brings us a who count for Moloch of six. Six. So for uh, Death Watch, we have uh, Stuart Bevan, who played Max, was uh, Professor Clifford Jones in The Green Death. Quite quite a big part there. Oh, is that uh, the one that thingy falls for? Yeah, he he marries Joe Grant. That's the one. Uh, David Sibley, who is the uh, the commentator, uh, the the guy hosting the TV show, was uh, Pralix in The Pirate Planet. And Mr. Stuart Fell! Hooray! Was a gunman! <laughs> I was in loads of who. All the who. All the who. <laughs> so that brings us a uh, who cap for Death Watch of three. Ah. A little on the low end. Indeed, yes. But we've not had a low count for a while. Well, except possibly Sarcophagus. I think we just. Yeah, just, if, just if we had one, one last time, yeah. Well, I suppose it, it uh, balances out all those ones which had shit tons of extras and I was uh, it's like, yes it's like I was doing the who count late and feverishly going bloody hell there's loads of people in this I'm recording in 20 <laughs> minutes <laughs> they've blown their extras budget yes <laughs> so should we, should we speak of of things Earth 2 and of Geek Planet Online we we shall we shall who to start uh, after you sir Okie dokie. Uh, we have a new podcast! Yay! Hooray! Indeed. Um, because Mike is never happy when he's not doing about three at once. <laughs> at least. Um, he has, 
started a podcast called For Better or Worse, uh, co-starring his wife, Shayna, and uh, yeah, carrying on our fine tradition of married couples doing podcasts after married to movies. Um, what this one kind of looks at is the casting of films, like within the context of the fact that lots of classic films nowadays are being remade or rebooted or sequelized long after they're relevant. And uh, so Mike and Shana essentially uh, look at actors who they think would suit the roles um, and explain their choices why and also envisage how Hollywood would screw it up and use, you know, flavour of the month names or people who are completely miscast. Um, I mean, they, they do also mention like um, how they would sort of how the plots might need to be changed for a modern audience as well. Yes, absolutely. I, mean, I know because be I've honest, listened to it, and it's a very good. Yeah, show. yeah, we're we're going off the fact that at the moment, as of time of recording, they've only actually done the one. Yep. Uh, but but they've started it off on the Breakfast Club, so a lot of roles to fill there. Yep. And uh, for people like me who haven't seen The Breakfast Club before, um, they also go over the plot and the characters and, you know, their their motivations and everything. Because so, uh, that's crucial in trying to, to fit the actor to the role. Yes. Um, I mean, I hadn't seen The Breakfast Club until uh, last year. Yeah. I sort of avoided it because everyone was all going, oh, hey, you got to watch The Breakfast Club. And I just sort of thought... Because I'd seen a lot of other John Hughes movies at the sort of right age to see them. Right, yeah. You know, the, 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 I was a teenager when I saw things like Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Weird Science and that sort of thing. Yeah, you see, I saw those two films for the first time, you know, within the last couple of years. Yeah. I liked Weird Science, whereas I, I liked Ferris Bueller's Day Off on the whole, but I thought the protagonist was an utter asshole. Well, yeah. Looking back at it now, I watch Ferris Bueller now, and I, I still kind of enjoy it, but again, I hate Ferris Bueller. It's like, you privileged yeah. <laughs> little prick. Yeah. You're in and, dire need of a good hard slap. And, and throughout the film, I just feel bad for the for the principal. Yeah. So the guy's just trying to catch a truant. That's his job. He's a principal. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's, it's actually probably the job of the truant officer, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Um... So, so yeah, so um, that is uh, Michael Chainer's mission statement. And what's more, um, on the F2.net forums, like they give they give you a few days to list it because what its uh, release schedule is is every other Friday. They were going to do it for the first Friday of every month, but uh, they've decided they've got enough material enough drive to do it fortnightly so so good for them and um, what they do after a few days is they then put uh, their choices down as polls on the forum and uh, they're inviting people to ultimately pick so that they can decide so uh, so Dave, you know uh, why not go over there and see who you agree with more yes, I shall, I shall have to go over there and have a look so that's that's the big news, I suppose. Of course, of course uh, there is the other Earth 2 news involving us. Well, I, I, I thought I'd save that just because it hasn't been released. 
But now that you've kind of alluded to it, and well, I mean, it also, was on I mean, Twitter, th- there is a possibility that it may have been released by the time this gets released. That is true. That's and, it, true. and if it hasn't been released yet, we can get people excited for it for when it is released. <laughs> build up some anticipation. You, you say that, Dave, but you know those Batman reviews that me and Mike kind of team up with—they get recorded long before they actually show. Oh, this podcast might have finished. <laughs> in which case, the anticipation and... will be at fever pitch. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, in short, um, Mr. Probert has made his Earth2.net the show debut. I have indeed. Very honoured to be asked. Yeah. Um, essentially, um, Mike came up with something crazy earlier in the year, um, saying, my God, I've just watched Dick Tracy. It's the best comic book movie ever made. And um, I think you responded to the Twitter post, and then I left it to an edition of Comic Relief yeah. to, to pour scorn on that notion. <laughs> um, and so Mike subsequently invited us to bring our Shake and Blake rapport to yeah, the... Our cutting-edge professionalism. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> to the beat-by-beat Earth 2 movie synopsis, which uh, tends to get used for the for the big reviews, uh, for the big episodes. And, um, I'm not afraid to say it, I'm a big-time player for the <laughs> <laughs> podcasts. Yeah. Although, um, in typical Shake and Blake style, it takes us 20 minutes to get past the opening credits. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, which which so, doesn't happen uh, so much when you and me aren't there. <laughs> well, no, true enough, true enough. Uh, so yeah, so me and Dave, uh, along with Mike, uh, we recorded a beat by beat review on Dick Tracy, and uh, don't know when it's coming out, but um, you know, the sooner we know, then uh, the quicker we'll let you know. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll probably tweet it anyway if anybody follows me. If, if, in fact, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we'll do, do a bit of a... I suppose that's not something we've really ever plugged. No, no we don't really. Don't really plug ourselves on Twitter, so uh, I'm uh, Geek Planet Dave. And I'm at Museum Walker Ian. Because I normally use it to try and pimp myself in a profession that I'm not actually in. Uh, <laughs> but hey, it's, you know, Twitter. Who cares? Yep. Um, so, so, yeah, so uh, go follow us. And, you know, have a, you know, the orgs are on there. Uh, and also, uh, Earth2.net is on Twitter. Yeah, Mike uh, posts as at Earth underscore 2. Um, perhaps they don't do hyphens on Twitter. Um, so, so, yeah, so. And you can also, uh, de- I was gonna say, you can also follow uh, Geek Planet online at, at GPO Tweets. Ah, yes. Where they, we put out uh, sort of uh, links to new articles and podcasts and, and the like. We've, we've run the, the occasional Twitter competition on there as well. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's all I can. Th- oh, I, I one other thing. Um, Kellen Scrivens, the Canadian yep. anime wizard, um, has again been a big part of the Winnipeg um, anime festival called. Uh, oh God, I'm going to get this wrong now. Uh, Amicon. Fingers crossed that's right. Yes. Uh, so he. Uh, no, Icon. Icon, um, AI hyphen K O N, and um, as per usual, he's been a very busy bee 
going around doing interviews and recording panels. So there's been a spike in uh, Animazing podcast episodes. Uh, I don't understand anime, so, you know, it's perhaps not for me, but um, Kellen is very committed. It's Animazing podcast is one of the longest-running uh, podcasts that we have. Uh, I think only third after uh, Earth2.net, the show, and Red Media. So, um, so hats off to the lad. Absolutely. Mm. So, Dave. Yes. Geek, Geek Planet Online. Indeed. Indeed. Well, uh, at the moment, uh, the uh, wonderful Mr. Jim Moon, on his uh, Hip the Bobs podcast, he's uh, currently reached part seven of his Natural History of the Batman series. Uh, I'm going to have to check my iTunes for that. Well, uh, in, in this one, he's looking at the uh, the 1989 Batman film. Is it just that? It, it, he, he was originally going to cover all the films, but he's uh, he's got he goes into uh, 89 Batman in such detail that he's having to leave the uh, the others for another show. All right, okay. Well, I, I mean, I I will jump in there, and I will definitely recommend everyone check that out because yeah, uh, in fact his, his entire like natural history of Batman series has been fantastic because he's looked, oh, yeah. looked at the uh, yeah. like the history of the comics from like their early beginnings he's he's covered different eras of Batman in the comics and not just looking at what happened in the comics but what was happening in the the wider world of, of comics in general that directly affected Batman the comics codes the 60s TV show yeah uh, you know circulation yeah, it, it, it's very informative. It's phenomenally well researched. Jim works really hard on this sort of thing, and he, and he comes across as very well researched, very very entertaining as well. And it's usually a couple of good bits of music played during it as well. <laughs> Mostly Batman related. Yes, but I mean he's also done a recent series on uh, werewolves as well, looking at uh, di- yes, various yes. different uh, films from uh, the uh, the earliest tales of werewolf myth. To uh, werewolves in films, or uh, such from the like the early sort of nineteen uh, twenties werewolf shorts, to things like the Universal werewolf sh- films, right up to uh, things like an American Werewolf in London. Dave, yes. On, on that note, I, I hesitate whether I should bring it up, but um, you know how when people type in random word, I, I'm sure there's a way of reaching Geekplant Online from people who've typed in seemingly completely unrelated words on Google. Oh, so like Google whacking, that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, do you know of any for Geek Planet? Uh, I, I don't know if we have any Google whacks, no, but I mean, I know there's, yeah. you know, we get picked up some bizarre search terms. Yeah, well, you know, the most famous bizarre Earth 2 search terms, Mike has like a, a forum full of them, but he sporadically updates them. The most famous one relating to werewolves is, um, Werewolf rape. Interesting. Apparently, someone typed in werewolf rape, and eventually Earth Two came up for whatever reason. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think it was like a fair few pages down. I, I, I bloody well hope so. <laughs> I'm not associating with such people. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so, sorry, sorry to divert off. Uh, no, no, not at all. The the the. the the glory of his ears hitting the bobs because I, I will definitely second everything Dave says about it. And uh, also over on uh, YouTube, our good friends Mike and Ike have uh, done a video interview with the uh, the cast of uh, Reanimator the Musical. Oh my! Which is uh, it's, it's currently enjoying a run at the Edinburgh Festival. 
it, it's uh, okay. he's both across the pond and he's uh, he's over here. So yeah, uh, if you go on to uh, YouTube and uh, you search for uh, it's Mike and Ike, and it's, uh, it's a little half-hour video of them uh, talking to the cast, and it, yeah, again, it's a it's a really good little uh, good little show. And Reanimator the Musical is a from all I've heard about it is is a really good show as well. I'll have to pop up to Edinburgh on the train. Yes, it's, it's you know. Scotland, Dave. It's a, it's a hop, skip, and a jump from Newcastle. Absolutely, it's a it, it, well, it's, it's half hours walk from where I am in the south, <laughs> according to the American films. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> on on the subject of werewolves, yes, <laughs> the the, the uh, creative geography of Great Britain, according to an American yes. werewolf in London, Yorkshire, right next to London. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that actually happens. If you get injured in Yorkshire, they will take you to a London hospital because Yorkshire doesn't have any. <laughs> there are no consultants in Yorkshire. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well then, uh, time to wind down. Terence, I presume you have no tedious scruples about cheating and lying. None at all. Oh, good. Next month, we are going to be covering... The season three finale, which is Terminal. So we're going to be uh, watching that and we're going to be looking back over series three as a whole. So if you have any feedback for Terminal or indeed any thoughts on the whole of series three, you can drop them to uh, Shake and Blake at GeekPlanetOnline.com or Shake and Blake at Earth hyphen two the number dot next. Yeah, mine's my, my easy to remember. <laughs> no, it isn't. You know, as, as long as you're coming across to the forums, you know, it's just, just that. Absolutely. absolutely. At rather than www. Well, until then, from me, Dave Probert. And myself, Ian Wilson. Thank you for listening to Shaker Blake. <laughs>